this morning I want to teach you to hate. There we go. I got a couple looks. I want to teach you to hate this morning. I want to teach you to hate sin. Um, but I'm not wanting to teach you to hate other people's sin. I want to teach you to hate your own sin. We already hate other people's sin enough. We likely don't hate our own sin enough. Today's message is called The Sinless Son of God. Now, how am I going to do that? How am I going to teach you to hate? Hate your own sin? Well, if I just went about this to teach you to hate your own sin, that would actually be the wrong way of doing it. Because what that would do is that would teach us to be legalists. We would be trying to pick, about, pick out sin. We'd, try to be, uh, we'd be working and working and working and making efforts towards being moral people, following the law. Uh, we'd be people of works and the law, but we wouldn't be people of grace. So the way I want to teach you to hate is actually to teach you to love. What I want us to do this morning is to learn to love Christ so much that it causes us to hate our sin more. That it causes us to be to despise sin. That it causes us to avoid sin like we might teach our children to avoid a hot stove. That we would avoid sin like a venomous snake on a trail or a spider web. Right, Brittany? We went hiking last night and we don't like spider webs. I want to teach you to avoid sin like boiled turnips. That's a personal thing for me. But in all seriousness, I am hoping that as a congregation, not immediately after this message, but that over the long run, you know, I've been, this will be four, four years uh, coming up in September, and, and my, my hope has been that our affections for Christ would grow as such through the preaching and teaching and singing and, uh, and fellowship among God's Word, that, that our affections would grow as such that we would love Christ with so much vigor that our hatred for sin would become almost palpable. And like I said, not others' sin, but our own. Our own sin. Jonathan Edwards shares this bleak outlook towards sin. He says, I know not how to express better what my sins appear to me to be than by heaping infinite upon infinite and multiplying infinite by infinite. When I look into my heart and take a view of my wickedness, it looks like an abyss infinitely deeper than hell. That's what Jonathan Edwards preached about his own sin. A very dreary, bleak look. And if Jonathan's Edward, if Jonathan Edwards' sole focus was on that abyss sin that was filling his soul, more so than the love of God that had changed his heart, then indeed his life would have been shambles. However, Jonathan Edwards had such a deep and rich 
view of the sovereignty and love of God, that that overshadowed this bleak abyss of sin that filled his heart because the Lord changed his heart. He saved him. In fact, he says this about sin as well. He says the smallest sin is an act of cosmic treason against a holy God. You've heard me say before that our sin is treason against the king. This is where it comes from. It's that quote. As Christians join Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth, we often speak of things that we'll gain, right? We think of resurrection bodies. We think of streets paved with gold, our deceased loved ones, and of course Jesus, that those are things that we gain, and those are rightly so. And while we speak of how general sin and the effects of sin will be no more, we often don't speak of the blessing that our own personal sin, past, present, and future, will be completely eliminated, Folks, I am looking forward to two primary things. First and foremost, Christ. I'm looking forward to being in the presence of Christ, physically in the presence of Christ for all eternity. And second, I am looking forward to being done with sin. And I don't mean a broken world. I'm looking forward to that too. I'm not looking, I'm I'm not talking about cultural sin. I'm not talking about this worldly sin that I have to deal with that invades our, our, our comfortable homes sometimes. I'm talking about personal sin that I despise in my own life that makes me want to wretch. I am so looking forward to being done with that to where I can see Christ for all he is and who he is and for what he's done. And I'm grateful that there will be a time for that. As we grow in faithfulness, our personal sin becomes more recognizable, more distasteful, and less satisfying. And so that's what I mean that I'm going to teach us to hate sin by teaching us to love Christ. Because the more that we love Christ, the more recognizable our wretched sin becomes, and we can put it to death. We can kill it. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at how Christ is better than angels, better than Moses, and better than Joshua. Now, for the next several weeks, we're going to switch to Jesus and his role as high priest, or the high priest who takes away our sins. We've already seen a passage this morning read from chapter 10 of Hebrews and that beautiful song at the cross. That took me back. That took me back. And here I am to worship. We went retro this morning. I was loving it. It was awesome. And so, I mean, but seriously, we're going to be looking at Jesus as high priest. And a lot of us, we we, we kind of skim over these verses because it's foreign to us. We don't talk of high priests in our own life these days, but the role of Christ as high priest is, is especially important as his role as Savior and as a sacrifice. And to put it quite simply, the role of the high priest in Hebrew culture was to stand in the gap between God and man. The high priest was this mediator. Man cannot stand in the presence of God, and therefore a high priest was selected from the tribe of Levi to offer sacrifice on behalf of the people. And and why was it the Levites? Well, go all the way back to the golden calf, and it was really the Levites were the only ones that were willing uh, and able to honor God uh, through all of that. Everybody else went went about their uh, sinful, merry way, but the Levites wanted to honor God, and so they were appointed as priests. And so that's why you have Levite uh, high priests. 
The problem or the challenge is that even this high priest is also a sinful man. Even the high priest is a sinful man. And he rightly cannot stand before God either because he's sinful. There's sin in his life. The high priest, the high priest could only stand in the gap between God and man, but the high priest could not remove sin, the people's sin or his own sin. It was symbolic. It was an illusion, not an illusion, an allusion to what was coming ahead. It's a foreshadowing of the high priest who not only would stand in the gap between God and man, who would mediate that relationship between God and man, but who would remove the sin that kept man from having a right relationship with God. He would reconcile that relationship. When our weaknesses, our physical, mental, or spiritual weakness, makes us prone to temptation, we must rely on a mediator or a high priest who knows and relates to our weakness, but who never succumbed to sin. Never. Never succumbed to sin. So when sin is heavy, and when we hate our sin, and we need a high priest who understands our pain, and who can remove it, who do we cling to? We cling to Christ. It's, it's, it's the only way. It's the only way. And so we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at a confession that we're going to hold on to. We're going to look at a Savior who we can trust. And we're going to look at a grace that is sufficient. And we're going to be in Romans chapter 4, if you'd like to open to that. We're going to be in Romans chapter 4. If you would stand, we're going to read God's Word as we approach the Word. Uh, let's stand and honor it. We're going to read these author's words in chapter 4, 14 through 16. And then we're also going to jump back to Matthew chapter 4 as well. And I'll explain why here in a minute. But this is what the author of Hebrews writes. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. By the way, that's the first time you hear that name in this passage. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, is, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father, may we this morning draw near to the throne of grace. May your mercy be rich. May your mercy be rich. May your grace be rich in our lives, Father. And may we honor you through the reading and the teaching and the understanding of your word. Father, grow us in faithfulness that we might honor you and demonstrate the love of Christ to the world around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So much of what we're going to refer to today is actually in Matthew chapter 4. And so I'm going to turn back there. And I just want to remind you of what Matthew 4 reads like. And if you remember... The story, immediately after Jesus is baptized, he is taken out into the wilderness, out into the desert, to be tempted. And here's what it says. This is chapter 4 of Matthew, verses 1 through 11. 
Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread, become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So in Matthew, Jesus is in a weakened state. He's in a weakened state. Satan tempts, and Jesus remains faithful to God and to his promises. And as we've been reading through Hebrews, the author warns us of falling away, the dangers of someone falling away from Christ and falling into condemnation. And, and, and here's the thing, to prevent this, it says, and we read this just last week, to prevent this, we must be invested in the word of life, in God's word, and in this confession, in this confession. And so this morning, the author begins our passage by saying this, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So because we have Jesus as our high priest, let us hold fast to our confession, right? Now, how does that have anything to do with the temptations of Christ in, in chapter 4 of Matthew? Well, let's dive in here real quick, okay? So what is this confession that we're talking about? Now, we've already referred back to this in chapter 3. Uh, David and Amber read this from chapter 10 uh, today. So there's a lot about this confession in Hebrews. And the confession, we've already said, is the gospel. That Jesus is Lord and that salvation is come. And in fact, Paul recites something similar in Romans 10, 9. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so in this confession... Paul and us, we are stating two truths about who Jesus is and what God has done through Jesus. That's what the confession is doing. It's, it's claiming something about who Christ is and what he's done. And so through this confession, we are stating this. We are stating that because Jesus is Lord, we are admitting that we are not. You can't have two lords. Either Christ is Lord of your life, or you are. And so when we confess, as Paul has written out, as the author of Hebrews has alluded to, when we are holding fast to that confession, we are confessing, admitting that Christ is Lord, not us. Folks, it takes, it demands humility to follow Christ. You cannot follow Christ with pride about your own station in life. Your station before Christ was condemnation. But because of Christ, the great high priest, we have now 
been awarded through Christ, or given, if you will, salvation. And so by stating Jesus is Lord, we are admitting that we are not. And number two, by stating that Jesus saves, we are admitting that we cannot save ourselves. So going back to Paul's words in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what will happen? You will be saved. This is a confession. And this is sort of what what the author of Hebrews is alluding to. In order for us to overcome sin and not be overcome by sin and fall away, we must humble ourselves and see Jesus as supremely good, sufficient, and wonderful. If at any time we start to believe the lie of Satan, that old lie back in Genesis 3, that we too can become gods, then we allow sin to get a foothold and we will lose our way. Now, what does this have to do with the temptations of Christ? What does holding on to this confession have anything to do with the temptations of Christ and the weakness of Christ? Well, it's this. Christ was certainly in a weakened state. He was certainly tempted. But even in the temptations of Jesus, the way that Jesus dealt with Satan's lies was not by handing the devil a resume of what he's done and what he's going to do. That's not what he did. He held on to the promises of God that were in God's word. That's what he clung to. He didn't come up with some new pithy statement. He actually quoted Deuteronomy is what he did. He held on to that confession in order to fight back Satan's temptations. He held on to the confession that God was worthy, that God was greater, the Father was greater than anything Satan could ever have to offer. And we've already talked about this months ago, but there was nothing that Satan could offer that wasn't already Jesus's. It's kind of weird, right? It's, it's, it's kind of strange. When we are weak and when t- temptation is strong, when sin is heavy, we run to Jesus and his word, not away from them. Now that seems, after reading this, is that just makes sense, logical sense. But that's not what we see in life. Those are not the anecdotes that we experience. Far too often, when we are weak, and when we are being tempted, and when we are overburdened by our own sin, instead of running to the throne of grace, we try to fix it ourselves Or just throw up our hands and saying nothing can be done. Folks, that's a life of defeatism, not a life of victory in Christ. We hold fast to the promises of God. We confess that while we are less, Jesus is more. And so since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So the first thing that we do when we are weak, because that's the assumption that the author is making, that we are all weak. The assumption is that we, every one of us are going to be tempted. Christ was tempted. We are going to be tempted. 
we are going to be weak. And contrary to Christ's success in the face of temptation, we will fail. We will sin. We will succumb to it. But we don't live a life of defeat. We cling to Christ and that confession that despite our sin, despite being an enemy with God, God loved us, sent His Son for us, and Christ dies for His enemies, as David so eloquently just said in his prayer, and we can be saved because Christ is the sinless Son of God, our High Priest. And the second thing we must do is we, have, we must trust our Savior. And so one of the reasons that Jesus is such an effective high priest, in fact, the only possible true high priest, is the fact that he is not ignorant of our plight. He's not ignorant of our plight. Now, of course, the Son of God would be aware of our sin, but more than that, he has experienced our weakness and temptation but he never sinned. So in verse 15, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Those last words make all the difference. Because if those words are not there, if it said, for instance, instead of yet without sin, it said, yet only a little sin, then the gospel falls through with and we are still condemned. This only works if our Savior is sinless. That's the only way that the gospel works. Jesus can demonstrate, we can trust him as our high priest, because Jesus can demonstrate real sympathy, not theoretical or hypothetical sympathy, towards our weaknesses and our temptation. In the desert, as Satan was tempting him, Jesus was weak. It says it right there. He was weak. He was hungry. It's likely that he was thirsty. It's likely that he felt exactly how you and I would felt if we were facing the same exact situation. These weaknesses do not minimize Christ's divinity, though. They don't take away Christ's divinity. What they do is they highlight the humanity of Christ. Because that's crucial too. At the same time, Jesus did not sin. So he was weak, he was tempted, but he did not sin. He did not succumb to the temptation of Satan. And this is also important to note, just as an aside, we're not going to follow this rabbit trail too far, but I do want to mention this. Temptation in itself is not sin. Because if temptation was sin, then that means Jesus sinned. Temptation is not sin. We will all be tempted at some point. But temptation is not sin. But I do want to add this. I might add it could have been sin that led us into temptation to begin with. It could be our sin that led us into that. So remember the Lord's Prayer. We're praying that God would not lead us into temptation. But we are very good at leading ourselves into temptation. And that could be a result of sin. But that's for another sermon. But I just want you to know that the temptation itself is not sin. And I say that because oftentimes we confuse the two. We confuse the two. Folks, it is a healthy 
thing. In fact, I would say that it is the only orientation of a Christian to be in battle with sin. Because if you are not fighting sin, then you are letting it prey upon your life. We need to be fighting back temptation, fighting sin. So fighting sin, fighting temptation, those are not sins. The sin is when we fall prey to it, when we allow it to invade and allow it to have sway over our lives. Jesus' perfection, among other things, like his divinity and being the Son of God, allows him to be the perfect high priest that no other priest could be. Previous priests were imperfect. And we look in the New Testament, right? And Caiaphas and all these high priests, they were imperfect. They were sinful vessels mediating between sinful man and a holy God. They were attempting to reconcile themselves along with a nation. So when they go in to the Holy and Holies, when they make that sacrifice, they're not just trying to provide sacrifice and, and mediation for the people that are standing out in the temple. They're doing it for themselves too. They are doing it for themselves too. On the other hand, Jesus is the perfect mediator and the perfect sacrifice. If Jesus is not sinless, perfect, then he cannot rightly stand in the gap for the lost. Jesus, catch this, is not just the final sacrifice. He is also the final high priest. We don't need another high priest now. We don't need another sacrifice. Jesus is it. Jumping forward to current events, you know, Don Lemon, he's an anchor on CNN. When uh, criticizing the founders of our, founders of our, nature, uh, of our nation uh, regarding slavery and things of that, um, which is, is, a, is a discussion that, that is appropriate to have, he did go a little too far. And I don't know if you all saw this, but I saw it pretty quickly. And he said this with regards to Jesus, because our nation was is based on a Christian uh, worldview. He says this, Jesus Christ, if that's who you believe, if that's who you believe in, admittedly was not perfect when he was on earth. Now, folks, I'll admit I was absolutely furious when I first read that. Furious. Furious, number one, that it was said, because I take great offense to that, you know, that's my Jesus you're talking about, right? I'm, it's like talking about my wife. You don't do that, okay? But here's the thing, all right? He said, that's one thing I'm furious about. The second one is that a news network would allow somebody, one of their prominent anchors, to get on there and say something that 30 million Christians across the nation, or more, all right, would completely disagree with because that's the foundation of their, of their faith. So now here's the deal, though. If Don is correct and Jesus was not perfect, then that means we don't have to follow his commands or his example, which means we can go about our own way and we can make up our own rules. Now, that sounds nice to a culture that wants to revel in their own hedonism. Let's just make Jesus imperfect. He's just a good teacher, but he made his mistakes. Let's make him more like us. And then we can make up our own rules. We really don't have to follow him at that point. You see where that goes from there. But here's the catch. If Jesus is not perfect, then you and I still stand condemned. We're still lost. 
If Jesus is not our Savior, then who is? Folks, let me just say this, okay? Don Lemon's not going to save you. Donald Trump is not going to save you. Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, not going to save you. Ronald Reagan, bless his soul, is not going to save you. Your spouse, your children, your parents are not going to save you. I'm not going to save you. So if Jesus is not our Savior, then who is? Who are you going to cling to when you are weak, tempted, and sin is heavy? Well, here's the thing. You can trust Jesus. He's been there, and He succeeded when no one else could. And so I was furious when I first read that. But then I kind of rested on it a little bit, and what I realized is that I'm really just sad because this is a dominant theme within our culture, and this is nothing new. So instead of throwing a fit when lost people act like lost people, let's pray for them. Let's pray for them and share the gospel, the only truth that can provide salvation. And so when we are weak in our sin and we are being tempted by sin, and when we are burdened by sin in our life, we first must hold fast to that confession that Jesus saves. And then we trust that same Jesus who knows our weaknesses, who knows our temptations. And let me say this too. Uh, It says here, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet uh, did not sin. Uh, Let me throw just one, one little tidbit. It's an aside to this sermon. It says, in every respect. There are some that believe that because of that phrase, that Jesus was tempted in his life with every possible sin that we could be tempted with and yet did not, yet did not over, uh, succumb to it. Okay, I don't think that's exactly what it means. I think what the author is implying here is that Jesus was tempted in every respect with the types of sin that we are faced with. And so, for instance, sexual sin. I believe it is completely possible that Jesus was tempted with sexual sin. That he was tempted with addiction. That he was tempted with anger. That he was tempted with all sorts of sin, all right, that we are faced with. Yet he did not sin, which leads us to our final point, and it's this, that grace is sufficient. So we hold fast to our confession and trust Jesus, and then we run to the throne of grace, which is sufficient in our time of need. Let us, in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, the author is drawing into this fact that Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Joshua. And by the way, Jesus is not a high priest. He is the high priest. He is the high priest to end all high priests. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. 
And so when we are weak, as Jesus was weak, when we are tempted, as Jesus was tempted, when we are bearing our sin, as Jesus was bearing our sin, we need to approach Jesus and his grace and mercy with confidence. Confidence that Christ is a remedy for our condition. We do not live in defeat. We live in the victory that Christ has born for us. And I want you to catch what I said there. When we were weak, Christ was weak. When, when we are tempted, Christ was tempted. When we are burdened by our heavy sin, Christ was also burdened with sin, but not his own. He bore, his, he bore our sin, not his. And so I am thankful that there is mercy and grace for sinners to be reconciled. But I am equally grateful for there is grace and mercy for the saints. No matter what we face in our lives as a believer, there is grace that is extended that allows us to move forward with confidence that God loves us, understands us, and is for us. And when we sin, there is mercy as well. That's the high priest in whom we worship. That's the high priest who went to bat for us. Matt Boswell and Matt Papa wrote this song entitled, His Mercy is More. And the last line of the chorus sings this. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many. But His mercy is more. And so when we feel overburdened by our weakness as believers, and when we feel burdened and, and just overweight by the temptations that are thrown at us, where we don't feel like we can handle another one, when we feel burdened by the sin that weighs us down, we're disgusted, we hold fast to the confession of the gospel that Jesus is still Lord and that He is Savior. We trust in a Christ who was weak and tempted as we, yet defeated sin on our behalf. And then we cling to Christ and His grace and mercy our hatred of sin should be equal to the confidence that we have in Christ to remove that sin. So when I say that I'm going to teach you how to hate, here's how. The more you love Christ, the more you want to follow Christ, the more you want to just be in the presence of Christ, the more you will despise the sin that is a stumbling block for you to be in that presence. But we don't live in defeat of that sin. We cling to... This is the thing. We don't try to fight that sin under our own power then. It just causes us to cling to Christ even more. Even more. So we don't dwell on our sin but we kill our sin and dwell on Christ. We don't give in to our sin, but rather we fight sin and we give in to Jesus. And we don't rest in our sin, we rest in Christ. And that is the life of a believer. And it goes like this.
And up here, we're like living on high. And down here, we're like, I don't think life could get any worse. But for the believer, we have confidence that there's always another peak that we can look to. And that's where Christ is. So as believers, we don't dwell on our sin and the stuff and the muck and the mire, but we turn our eyes upon Christ. We turn our eyes upon Christ and rejoice that we have a high priest who knows every aspect of what we are going through and loves us all the same. So let us hold fast to that confession that we are working so hard at teaching and preaching and singing about. Let that be the song of our life, that confession that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Lord and that he is raised from the dead. Let that be the song of our life. Let's that, let that be what we, what we sing to that we live in. Let us trust Christ and let us have confidence in that grace and that mercy that he gives.